circumstances were not friendly to me this last week, so I had all intentions of us jumping back into our study of Mark's gospel this morning. Uh, but my body did not cooperate early with me last week, and I was uh, sick and out of the office for a couple of days, which put me behind schedule, which wouldn't be too bad except for the fact that it was a holiday weekend, which meant that we were traveling and with people all weekend and didn't really afford me much chance to get ahead with our Mark series. So what we're doing is we're going to go back and we're going to, uh, I'm going to look at a passage with you that uh, many years ago um, I did with our church family, but I, I think it will be really helpful as we kind of follow up to what we learned in main service last Sunday. So last Sunday we were talking about in Colossians the uh, responsibility of spirit-filled children to obey and to submit to their parents. And so I thought, you know what, let's, let's, let's look at that a little bit more. Uh, but today I want to look at that through the lens of Jesus himself. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And we are going to, like I said, follow up on last week's sermon that we talked about in, uh, did I say Colossians? Philippians. Colossians also has something to say about it, but Philippians, Philippians chapter, uh, well, no, not Philippians, Ephesians. Where in the world? See, this is where, this is what sickness does to you. It messes with your mind. So we were in Ephesians chapter six last week in main service talking about spirit-filled children and the role of them to obey their parents and honor their father and mother. So we're going to look at that again through this lens this morning. And I know in our culture, uh, the command to obey your parents can feel like an ambition, ambitious one because, I mean, in many ways we think to ourselves, times are different, or you may be thinking to yourself, well, you don't know my parents, you don't know my situation and my background, and that's maybe true, certainly. But I thought to myself this, uh, this week, there's no better place to look at this example than the life of Jesus himself. We've learned a lot over this last year as we've looked at uh, Jesus and his ministry as an adult uh, and what that has looked like leading up to the point where we are in Mark's gospel where he's about to uh, enter into his final week of life and die on the cross for the sins of mankind. But I'm often faced with that question of what about the significance of the decades before that? Right? Most of what we find in the Gospels, apart from a little bit about Jesus' birth, are really about Jesus' life as an adult, as a full-grown man. So what about the rest of his life? There's a lot of time that exists in between there. What's said? What is it that we can learn about it? And the reality is that there's very little that's said. But what is said about Jesus in that small gap of time, I think is incredibly important and incredibly revealing. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, which is one of my favorite passages about Jesus. And that comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 40 to 52. So we're going to read that together this morning. We're going to give a few thoughts on it as a follow-up to last Sunday's uh, sermon and main service. So go ahead and stand if you're able, and we're going to read from Luke chapter 2, starting in, let's start in verse 39 for some context here. Luke 2, starting in verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. 
And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. Go ahead and have a seat. We'll pray and we'll ask for God's blessing on our time together this morning. Father, thank you for, um, Lord, so many of your blessings. We think about the weekend here and the opportunity to give extra pause uh, to just be thankful. Uh, Lord, we, we never want to take for granted the privilege it is each Sunday for us to gather to, to worship you through studying uh, the Bible together. Lord, this is a, a tremendous gift that you have left for us. You are not a God who leaves us wondering who you are, or what you're all about, but you have made it very clear to us. You have revealed to us in Scripture who you are. And this morning, we're just asking again for your favor as we, we come to your word to better understand the person and work of Christ. Uh, and Lord, especially as we look at his teenage years here, we, we want to just, we want to learn, we want to grow, we want to be conformed to the image of Christ. So help us to do that this morning as we look at uh, this very revealing and very important passage in the life of Christ. So uh, we need you and we're asking for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, an important element of any good biography is recounting the early years of somebody's life. Uh, without understanding the early years of someone's life, you can't truly appreciate and understand the fullness of what they become as a full-grown person. Uh, take, for example, uh, President Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know how many of you know about Teddy Roosevelt. But he became known in his later life as a pretty rugged outdoorsman, a hunter, an adventurer, this kind of wild uh, guy in many ways. Uh, but what many people don't know about Teddy Roosevelt was that when he was a kid, he was actually plagued by severe asthma. Uh, he had such bad attacks as a kid that his father would have to take him on carriage rides all the way to the ocean shore to get him fresh air so that he could breathe and actually survive in many ways. It's not exactly the picture of a rugged outdoorsman that you would get uh, from knowing what you know about Teddy Roosevelt. And yet these health concerns in his early years are what made his story as a rugged outdoorsman later on all the more impressive. 
You see, you can't fully appreciate the story of an influential individual without understanding their early years and how transformative and shaping they actually are. So what does that mean for us as it relates to Jesus? Well, I think God, in his sovereign wisdom, decided to leave us with virtually nothing about his upbringing. Virtually nothing. Except for one story. Just one story. In some ways, I felt cheated over the years by that reality. Right? I mean, especially for somebody who does ministry to teenagers. And somebody who tells teenagers all the time that your example and your model in life is Jesus. It would be really helpful to have Lots of stories and examples to point to of like, see how Jesus did this or see how Jesus did that as a teenager, as somebody that you can relate to. And yet, the Bible hardly says anything about him during his childhood, teenage, or even young adult years. And you can feel deprived, like God has somehow withheld something really valuable from you. And yet, I would propose that we should look at that from a different angle. I would say that maybe God in his grace did that intentionally. Because if God chose to preserve just one story, just one story from Jesus' childhood, might that be because that story says it all. Maybe because that single story sums up the totality of what that stage of Jesus' life looked like. So what is it that God would want us to learn about Jesus from this story? If I were to ask you to take a stab at summarizing Jesus' childhood from your own imagination, I wonder what would it look like? If you were to guess and to sum up in one sentence... Jesus' childhood looked like this, what would it be? Well, my guess is that for most of us, we'd probably have a different picture of Jesus than what the Bible often portrays. If we were to, to sum it up, we would maybe phrase things or uh, speak to the perfection of Jesus as a child which would be very true, but I think it would be faulty in some ways. Well, how does Luke sum up the totality of Jesus as a young person? If you were to look at verses 40 and 52, I think they tell us. Look at what verses 40 and 52 say about Jesus. Verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with what? Wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in what? Wisdom. And in stature and in favor with God and man. Shows us here where the emphasis of this entire story lies. This is what we call an inclusio, which is a very fancy word for saying this is a sandwich. This is a sandwich. Which means that the beginning and the end... Speak to the very same thing, which means that everything in between the, the, that, the, the meat of the sandwich 
is all about these realities here, that Jesus, in his youth, was committed to growing in wisdom. And so the big idea I want you to see from this passage as we go back through it quickly this morning is this. Jesus shows that, shows us that even the Son of God was willing to humbly grow in wisdom as a child. That even the Son of God was willing to humbly grow in wisdom as a child. In many ways, these verses prove the the perfect connection between both the divine and the human natures of Jesus. The fact that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. It's possible that the kid Jesus that we formulate in our minds is very different from the kid Jesus that we learn about in this passage. Oftentimes, my guess is that when we think about Jesus as a kid, we think, well, he must have been the best at everything, right? He was the fastest runner in his class. He was the best test taker. He got perfect grades all the time in his carpentry class, right? But I think sometimes we have a misconception that just because he was sinless means that he was perfect at everything. In fact, our one of our favorite Christmas carols this time of year, Away in a Manger, right? No crying he makes. I don't know about you, but I've never met a baby that doesn't cry, right? Sinless does not mean that he was flawless in every way. He still did the things that a child would do. He had failures, very real failures. Guess what? He didn't win every game of Monopoly as a kid. But guess what? His response to losing was still sinless. He played, but he obeyed more. He was probably more ordinary than we actually think. I like the way that David Mathis sums up Jesus as a child. He says this, it's easy to digress into speculation and miss the powerful point of these important summary verses. God has something to teach us here in the previous few details that he would send his own son to live and mature in labor and labor in relative obscurity for some three decades before going public has something to say to us about the dignity of ordinary human life and labor and the sanctity of incremental growth and maturation. In other words, through Jesus and his example as a son, Jesus clearly puts on display what, we, uh, what it looks like to just live in faithful humanity day after day after day. And that is important for you even as a teenager. What it looks like day after day to just live ordinary life and be faithful to the Lord. Because the majority of Jesus' life, even though we see this great story in the Gospels about Jesus, the majority of Jesus' life was lived in quiet maturity. Not big, exciting moments. After his birth, he goes off to Nazareth to an unimpressive, obscure town to live for the most, light, uh, most part an unimpressive life. So much so that his own people would later say, is this not the carpenter's son? They didn't say, oh, yeah, that's the child prodigy that grew up amongst us. Remember, he was the guy who never did anything wrong. He was perfect and everything. No, he He was just an ordinary guy from among them. Shows us that our own glorified view of Jesus and his childhood may not be what we often make it out to be. And still, it was remarkable in a different kind of way. And it teaches us 
much about what it means to live faithfully for God, even as a teenager. Because Jesus' life was summed up as humbly growing in wisdom and favor with God. So how did he do this? Well, first, he humbly grew in wisdom by learning God's word. He did this by learning, first, God's word. Verse 41 shows the spiritual devotion of Jesus' family. They're, they're heading to Passover, as any good Jews would. In fact, this is kind of timely for us in our Gospel of Mark, because where is Jesus on his way to? Jerusalem. To observe what? The Passover, right? So this is a good timing for us in Mark's gospel because this is really a flashback in many ways to Jesus and one of his earliest uh, encounters with the city of Jerusalem. Now, to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem would have been about an 80-mile journey. Uh, And again, most of that is uphill. You would have probably been covering no more than about 20 miles each day. So this is like a four-day family vacation, except you're not driving, you're walking the whole way. Some of you probably maybe traveled for four hours in the car this week and you thought that that was torture. Four days, 80 miles, all on foot. And this journey is even more special for Jesus since verse 42 makes it clear that he is 12 years old. Because according to Jewish tradition, one became accountable to the law at age 13. Maybe you've heard of uh, Jewish boys having their bar mitzvah. Have you ever heard of that before? Right? So that's kind of your coming of age moment. So Jesus is really on that, on the cusp of that becoming of age moment. It's an important part in his development as a young person. So perhaps this was in the back of his mind because uh, <laughs> while his family began their trip back home, Jesus stays behind. Un- unknown to his family, Jesus stays behind. He, he, some of you may think, well, how in the world do you, how, do, how in the world do you forget Jesus, right? I mean, if it's your family, what, how are you forgetting him? But this is where you have to remember that when these families traveled, they traveled in large caravans, right? So it wasn't just maybe your family traveling. It may have been the whole uh, group of Jews traveling from Nazareth, right? So it might have been Jesus's family and several other families, an extended family, all together traveling in one giant herd together towards Jerusalem. So this is some big family event. And so for him to just kind of be amongst the crowds and amongst the people is not too unexpected uh, by his parents. So that's not uncommon except for the fact that they get a whole day's journey, which probably means about 20 miles away from Jerusalem before they realize, "Uh uh-oh, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen? No, I thought he was with you. I thought he was... Jesus is nowhere to be found. <laughs> a few weeks ago, uh, Greta, you asked me the question of uh, what some of my like, favorite Christmas movies are. And I realized that in the conversation, uh, I left out probably one of my true favorite Christmas movies. And that is Home Alone. I love Home Alone. That was like one of my, one of the earliest Christmas movies when I was a kid. It came out right when I was uh, a couple years old. Uh, Mary in the story has a very serious uh, Kate McAllister moment where she realizes all of a sudden it's like that Kevin moment, right? If you've ever seen Home Alone, you know what I'm talking about, right? On the airplane, realizes, uh oh, that's what's missing, right? This whole time, something doesn't feel like, something doesn't feel like Jesus, right? I don't know about you, like, what the most important thing you've ever misplaced is. 
but I don't know that you've ever misplaced God before, right? In the seriousness of this moment, I can't help but kind of chuckle when I think to myself about the fact that Mary, Mary had been given the Son of God, and she in this moment is now thinking she just lost him, right? <laughs> that Mary just lost God. The, the previous two chapters of Luke have built up this idea that she was raising the Savior of God's people, and here she is now having lost him. I mean, could you imagine the gossip, gossip, right? Oh, there goes Mary. That was a woman who was entrusted to raise the Savior of God's people, but then lost him. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic with that because the fear would have been overwhelming, as any mother knows for her child and for anyone who ever becomes separated from their child or their family before. Maybe that's been you before. But obviously, this sparks the return back to Jerusalem, and they spend a whole nother day searching for Jesus. So they go a whole day's journey before they even know he's gone. They go a whole nother day back, and they spend a whole day looking for Jesus, right? This is several days now that have gone by, and he's nowhere to be found. Until... Maybe last resort, they think to themselves, let's go check the temple. We had to be at the temple at some point, right? There he is. There he is, sitting among the teachers of the law. Some of the brightest minds of Judaism. And what is Jesus doing? He's learning God's word by first listening. Listening. This is perhaps the only time in the Gospels where Jesus is portrayed as the learner, not the teacher. It's not the perception I have when I usually think of this story. I usually think of Jesus being this 12-year-old boy who knows all things about the law, and he's sitting there teaching the teachers of the law, right? And that his responses, uh, obviously his responses may have been instructive to some degree, but primarily we find Jesus in this humble state of listening to others about the Old Testament. And I can only imagine his fascination as he heard the things of the law and he asked questions about the Old Testament prophets and the sacrificial system and the laws of Moses. All these different things that were actually in reality pointing to him. Who he was becoming in his very being. Sometimes I think we have the misconception that because Jesus was God, he had perfect knowledge from birth. Again, as if Jesus like came out of the womb and he was already like saying his ABCs and talking, right? But that's not the case. Though he was God, Philippians 2 talks about certain attributes being veiled when he took on humanity. Certain things that he would have to learn and grow just as any normal human would. And here we see Jesus displaying for us what it means to be a learner, even if, you are, even if you're God. And that's further seen by not just listening, but asking, asking questions. This was a common teaching method of the day, to dialogue in the form of questions and answers. I mean, does it amaze you to think that the omniscient, all-knowing God who came to this earth was willing to ask questions? 
Again, I don't want you to read into that as if there weren't ways that he didn't know certain things. In fact, the text, the, the text says that his questions often revealed an understanding of the Old Testament that was beyond what any child would or should know at that age. But still, his manner of learning showed a hunger for God's word and a humility of learning from others. Student, your commitment to be a lifelong learner of God's word is a sign of humbly growing in wisdom. It's not a know-it-all attitude. It's not tuning out a sermon because, oh, I've heard this story before. Think about it. Jesus was God. And he still set the tone for how we should learn. He was still willing to hear the Bible talk to him even though he was God. It's a reminder that no matter how old you are, learn to humbly listen and ask good questions. But second, Jesus humbly learned by also, or humbly grew in wisdom by embracing God's mission. By embracing God's mission. This is the background of verses 48 and 50 here. Notice, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. (laughs) Any self-respecting parent can sympathize with Mary, right? She, she gets to him and she's like, son, what, what in the world, right? Why have you treated us this way? The fact that they were uh, astonished is a word that refers to a reaction of being overwhelmed by, uh, by events. It's kind of a mixture of emotions, both amazement and relief, uh, because they were anxious about where he had been, but also maybe a little bit hurt, by what he had just done. Think of it. Perhaps part of their astonishment here is due to the fact that they were so worried about him, but he seems very little concerned about them, right? Most of the time, if you find a kid who's been separated from their parents, they're not happy-go-lucky, right? A lot of times they're like crying and going from person to person. Have you seen my mom? Have you seen my mom? Do you know where my parents are? Jesus doesn't show any concern like that, does he? So even as his parents, it's, it's hard not to take this maybe even a little bit personally. I mean, couldn't he even shed just a few tears of relief that he found us? But perhaps most astonishing is his response to Mary and what that communicates to us today because we see in his response to Mary his priority. His priority and his priorities that he had in life. The very first words of Jesus in the Gospels essentially are in this account here, right? We don't know anything of what Jesus said as a little little baby, what his first words were. We know what he said when he first came into ministry and made himself public. But these are the very first words that are recorded of Jesus in Scripture as a teenager. And they're very telling to us because they communicate his priorities. In fact, when he says, I had to be in my father's house, it's basically his, his way of saying it was necessary. It was necessary. 
His priority was to be in the Father's house carrying out His Father's will. Wisdom is beginning to click and help him see that his priorities are much bigger than just a commitment to his earthly parents, but also to his heavenly father. He's beginning to fully realize that the mission that God the Father had sent him to do on this earth was so much bigger. I can't help but see the significance of this story in the grand scheme of of everything else in the Bible. Because here we are at Passover time. And who else is in the temple teaching the people or listening and learning but the very Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world? I mean, think about the irony of that for just a moment. Jesus, the coming Lamb of God, sitting in the very temple where days earlier lambs were being slaughtered and killed for the sins of the people. And here Jesus now sits a few decades removed from what he was going to do for mankind himself. Here we must understand that his priorities are always closely that priorities are always closely associated with identity as well. Priorities and identity go together. While much of this passage looks at Jesus' humanity, here is where we are brought back to his divinity, the fact that Jesus is God where humbly growing in wisdom meets its central focus in Jesus. Here's where Jesus lifted himself, not above the human realm, not claiming himself to be Mary's son or Joseph's son, but God's very son. His coming work was connected to his relationship with God the Father. Remember how later on this very confession gets him in trouble in his earthly ministry whenever he claims God is his father? I mean, that's the very reason that people wanted to put him to death was because he made himself equal with God. That was punishable by death in that culture. And even his parents didn't fully understand what he was talking about here. It's kind of a glimpse into what would be true about his earthly ministry, that people would misunderstand who he, who he was and why he did what he did. And while we and you students are not in the same position as Jesus, your, your priority and your identity are not the exact same as his, I think there's still some application for you here as well. I think this passage still teaches us much about our own response to others as Christians. Because the reality is, if you are a Christian, if you profess to know Christ and you claim to follow Jesus, if you live according to God's will, it's going to raise a few eyebrows, isn't it? Because you're going to quickly realize that your priorities and your pursuits and what you exist to do in this life look different from the ways of this world, right? Different priorities if you follow Jesus. Jesus has made that very clear to us in the Gospel of Mark, that following him means your life is going to look different. Your identity has changed because it's no longer in who you once were, but it's now rooted in who I am. And your life that you now live is not your own. It is one that is modeling me and showcasing me to other people. It's going to look different. 
your priorities are consistent with God's priorities, people are going to ask questions. They're going to seek answers. And guess what? Just like Jesus' parents, they might even misunderstand you. And yet what a great opportunity such situations afford you as a Christ follower. Because like Jesus, you can humbly tell people who you are and why you do what you do. About how your identity in Jesus changes your priorities in this life. How you live for God and not for yourself. How you live to do the Father's will and what pleases God rather than what pleases yourself. Great wisdom can be shown in a humble, gentle, loving response that communicates your new identity and your new priorities in this life. Third and finally, the the last way that we see Jesus, even as a child, humbly growing in wisdom is by obeying God's authority. By obeying God's authority. Look at what verse 51 says. It says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. In many ways, Jesus' statement makes it seem like time, his time has come, like he's ready to go, right? Like his mission is about to start even as a 12-year-old. But we forget that the next 18 years of his life is pretty simple, isn't it? 18 years go by between this account and when Jesus actually begins his ministry. And instead of Jesus launching into his full-scale ministry as a 12-year-old, what do we hear? We hear in verse 51 the simplicity of he went back home with his parents, he remained with them, and he was submissive to them. In other words, translation, he lived as an obedient child in his parents' household. We see Jesus obeying God's authority for his submission. Quietly they go. He listens to his parents and he settles into a quiet life in an outcast village for the next 18 years of his life. All that time it says that he was submissive to his parents. Does that not kind of blow your mind when you think about it? I know it does for me when when I start to really wrestle with the reality of it because here you have Jesus who is God himself. I mean, if any child had an excuse to exert authority over his parents, wouldn't it be Jesus? Right? Joseph comes home and says, hey, Jesus, I need to have you pick up your room. Well, do I need to remind you, Joseph, who I really am? I am the son of God after all, right? No. No. None of that. Jesus knew that he couldn't do that even. He couldn't. An important test of Jesus in his humanity, an important test in growing in wisdom and favor with God was the fact that he would remain fully submissive and fully obedient to his parents. It's very easy for me as a parent to say, see students, even Jesus obeyed his parents, so you go and you obey your parents, right? It's easy for me to just say that. And it's true, and you should do that. 
But let's not be quick to overlook the big picture of obedience and submission in this passage. While the immediate application of this was very much to his parents, it all sets the tone for all God-given authority structures in this world. It speaks to our submission to all authority structures in this life, to governments, to employers, to wives and children, to the church, right? All of this sets the tone for true and right obedience and submission to those who God has put in charge. The importance of Jesus learning obedience cannot be overstated. Why? Well, because Hebrews 5 tells us that this was an important part of Jesus' redemptive work that he came into the world to do. The writer of Hebrews says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, listen, he learned obedience. Through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who, what? Obey him. The writer of Hebrews here connects such obedience to Jesus securing the perfect righteousness necessary for our eternal salvation. That's amazing for us to think about, as it was also for Mary and her own reflection on this. Mary treasured up these things in her heart, verse 51 said. I mean, she had a lot to process after these events and what Jesus had said. They had heard for years that the son that they were raising would be the the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who had come to save Israel from their sins. But the full meaning of that is, is really hard to comprehend. It's the first time this statement has appeared since Simeon's warning to Mary in chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, where Simeon had warned Mary, verse 34, let's look at it real quick. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This idea that a sword would pierce Mary's own soul. It's the fact that Mary would have to come to grips with the fact that her own son would also be her savior. She would soon have to exchange her parental authority over him for his divine authority over her. And the reality is that's true for all of us, isn't it? Especially those of you who have yet to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. You have not truly submitted yourself to Jesus' authority over you. You're holding on to your own authority rather than accepting Jesus for who he really is. This verse is a reminder for us that we have to receive and accept and embrace Jesus for who he really is. And so this story concludes in verse 52 with that summary statement that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It describes the next 18 years of Jesus' life. He grew spiritually, physically, socially, all those things, all preparing him for the appropriate time when he would take up his mantle, carry out his earthly ministry, and embark on the road that would eventually lead him to the cross, to the grave, and eventually back to his heavenly father's side. What a remarkable testimony of the very son of God. 
What an example it sets for us as we seek to follow in his ways. And it's a call for all of us this morning to follow in Mary's footsteps and humbly grow in wisdom by treasuring Christ. To treasure Jesus for who he really is. To treasure something, student, is to, to hold it closely, to hold it dearly, to cling to it for what it really is and for the value that you really understand it to be. The only way that you, student, will ever grow in wisdom is by laying down your pride, laying down your own agenda and your own authority. To say that Jesus is my life, my savior, my example, my everything. He is all to me. What an incredible testimony it would be if by humbly learning God's word, by embracing God's mission and obeying God's authority, others were to say about your life, what an amazing God they serve. There's something attractive about the God they serve because of who he has made them to be. Student, that's what it looks like to glorify God with your life. That's what it looks like to glorify God even as a young person, as a teenager, someone not far removed from who Jesus was at this stage of life. Guess what? That is something that is available and is an opportunity for each and every one of you. Recognize that Jesus' life seems so far removed from who you are or maybe who you want to be, and yet it models for us and all these examples of humble, growing, and wisdom, that it's actually not that far removed from what you can do. To glorify God, to make him look good, to put him on display for all the watching world to see. So my exhortation to you this morning is that we would all humble ourselves, that we would look to Jesus, God's own son, and hold him close so that we too would grow in wisdom and glorify our Heavenly Father just as Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning again. Thank you for the example of Christ. Thank you that even as a young person, as a, as a, a boy who's on the, the cusp of becoming a teenager, and really in many ways of that culture, a, a young adult, thank you for providing for us a simple and refined look at who Jesus was and what he was set apart for and how we as even young people can model that, how we can learn from that and grow in that, Lord. Humility is so hard to come by, especially in a culture right now that uh, prioritizes self-exaltation, self-gratification. Lord, we know that to follow Jesus is, is none of those things. It's to... In fact, as Jesus said, die to self and to follow him. So, Lord, I, I would pray for all of our students that you would just help each of them to destroy their pride, to stop making this life about themselves, but, Lord, to make it all about you and to be on mission for you. And that when others see that, when they see how different it looks, that it might raise questions that they would be ready to respond with and that they might be able to proclaim the goodness and the glories of Christ who has changed them into this new person. Lord, would you be pleased to do that through their lives, I would ask in Jesus' name. Amen.